Join over 5,000 attendees for the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, February 28th to 29th, 2024. Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans, Balaji Srinivasan, and over 150 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential minds to explore and unveil the next wave of transformative AI technologies. Singapore will become a vibrant AI hub for a week from February 26th to March 3rd with over 150 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Visit www.realvision.com forward slash super AI for 20% off tickets with the code realvision. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, November 27th. I'm Harry Mullandry from MI2 Partners, filling in for the much better looking Maggie Lake. Maggie Lake. Um, I'm joined today by Vincent Deluard, uh, Director of Global Macro Strategy at Stonex. Vincent, how are you doing? I'm excellent. Very happy to be here. And I, I miss Maggie, but I'm very happy to be speaking with you today. I miss Maggie too. I'm 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 just no replacement, really. I really am not. But I'm do I'll do my best for what little I can do. I'll do it. Um, so Vincent Vincent, you were saying that um, if people at Real Vision know you, they know you as the inflation guy. Um, and that the question is whether inflation has reset to a higher level. Um, talk to me about that. Are you still thinking the same? Uh, over the long term, yes, very much so. I think we are. Um, you know, great reset. I'm not saying that in a conspirational kind of way. I'm just saying that uh, rates, inflation, nominal growth uh, were subdued uh, in the 2000s and 2010s, and they have reset to what is really their more normal level uh, where we should expect um, inflation of 3 4%. Uh, nominal growth of four five percent, and as a result, uh, long-term interest rate. Um, I would argue probably above five percent uh, with ebbs and flows. Uh, I suspect we are uh, in one of these ebbs uh, where you know I, I'm not um, denying the reality that the CPI is, is falling and, and may continue to fall. Uh, I just don't believe that we will reset sustainably to, I mean, maybe we see a 2% handle if we get lucky, if energy prices cooperate, uh, but I don't think that um, that will remain uh, over the long term. And really the the, the key data point is, is wages. And as long as we have wage growth in the 4 5% range, uh, that means inflation needs to be in that range as well. So is it only uh, wage inflation, which I, I agree with you, what I see uh, seems to be consistent with inflation in the medium term being at more a 4 to 5% level. Um, all the wage settlements I see from the union seem to be pointing in that direction. Um, and companies don't seem to have anything to push back against it. But why why has that happened? Um. I mean, a lot of that has to do with just demography, really. I mean, you have almost two boomers who are retiring for every Gen Z that's coming into the labor market, uh, and that create, creates a squeeze on, on many professions, uh, especially things like uh, um, um, 
manual work, manual labor. Uh, you know, Gen Z is highly educated. The, the prior generation is more into kind of technical trades, uh, and and then workers have a have a lot of bargaining power. So, uh, at the same time, we had a um, almost no immigration during the COVID years, and 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 much lower immigration during the Trump years. So we're not getting these workers, uh, and then we're still feeling the the headwind from. Um, the, the great labor arbitrage, which to me was the the, story, the greatest story of the past 30 years was that. I mean, you could, you know, basically cut 70% of your labor costs by moving your, your corporation to China. Uh, and, and, and we don't have that anymore. Uh, so we're going back to the world we were before China, which is a world where unions have power, where um, margins are a bit smaller and, and employers have to share a bit more with, with, with employees. Um, and um, yeah, it's the big, if you look at um, uh, work stoppages, days lost to strikes this past year, it's the highest since the early 80s. Uh, and, and I believe that the more, uh, the more these actions we see, the more we will see. I mean, there is a, um, a contagion effect, right? I mean, if you work at American Airlines and you see the United Airlines pilot get a 20% pay raise, you would want one as well. Uh, if you are a teacher and the guy next door is a UPS truck, um, a UPS truck driver makes tw twice as much as you do, uh, you're pretty pissed. You know, why haven't gone to college? Uh, so, uh, and, and I would argue from an economic standpoint, that's, that's a great thing. Um, I think many of the troubles we've been into in terms of, of debt uh, and low growth uh, and high asset prices owe to the fact that, that the middle class has been gutted uh, in, in the past 20 years and, and workers' compensation has not kept up with, with healthcare costs, the cost of college, and certainly not the cost of assets. Uh, so as part of this reset, we are resetting the relative value of labor versus that of capital. So, you know, I'd love, it'd be a much more interesting show if I could push back. But I, I agree with everything you said. I don't, I, there's not anything there that I would really argue with. Um, so that leads me asking you questions about the trade. Um, we got about 80 basis points of rate cuts priced uh, for the next 12 months in the short-term interest rate contracts. What trade should I be looking for over the next six months? So I, I used to get, you know, very, very angry and mad at the sofa curve, uh, because my, especially last year, I mean, my expectation was there would be no lending whatsoever, and trampoline lending. I think so the last interview that I did with, with Real Vision, and and the curve was, you know, obsessed with pricing a recession yesterday, right? I mean, every time, oh, the Fed's going to cut, the Fed's going to cut, and. It's not going to cut. I mean, nominal GDP was growing at 10%. Uh, all my indicators were suggesting the economy was not slowing down. So um, I would argue that disconnect is still there, but it's so much smaller than it was just six months ago. So I'm, I'm a lot less uh, sanguine about it. But I, I still think if, if I had to take a position, I think the uh, maybe not the magnitude of the cuts, but at least the timing of these cuts is, is perhaps excessive. Um, I think we, we're starting to price the first cut as of uh, probably something like March. Uh, and then we have about 75 basis points uh, throughout the year. Um, I mean, I could see a scenario where, yeah, the, the Fed cuts by more than 75 basis points. So it's, it's not necessarily the magnitude, uh, but it's the timing. Um, March is, is probably too early. I mean, what, what's going to be that different in March uh, from today? 
Um, I mean, the labor market will not, it's a very slow moving boat. It's not gonna, you know, we're still creating 150,000 jobs a month, pretty much. <laughs> These things are not gonna go away in three months. I mean, it looks like, you know, we had a fairly good um, Black Friday or Cyber Monday, whatever they call it. Uh, then we're gonna hit the vacation, the, the, the holiday period. Um, so it's hard to see to see that the Fed would cut. And why, why should they? I mean, that, that's the part that I think is, um, um, delusional uh, when it comes to to the bond market is, um, you know, if you Powell, things look pretty good right now. I mean, you you, you know you've pulled out that that soft landing. Um, unemployment is, is still very low. The stock market is almost at a record high. Um, the the economy is you know inflation has gone all the way from nine percent to to three and a half. Why would you mess things up? Why would you change just if it ain't broke it, don't fix it. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I suppose the, the counter would be that financial conditions are just not particularly tight. So in the same way you don't see a recession, I don't even see much of a slowdown. Um, I uh, made the mistake, you know, my wife being uh, the clever woman she is, she managed to persuade me that driving to New York the day after Thanksgiving would be a good idea. There'd be no one else on the road. (laughs) Turns out that wasn't true. Um, And uh, in retrospect, I looked up what was going on because it was a ridiculous journey. And uh, there was a lot of shopping going. People were going to every outlet mall. So if, if, if casual empiricism is worth anything, hint to the audience, no, it isn't. Um, there, there's no signs of a slowdown whatsoever. So how does this story actually pan out on a medium-term one- to two-year view? Um, when does the Fed move, and what would cause that to happen? Um, well, on, on, the, on the slowdown, I, I'm with you. I think it's a, it's a slow slowdown, <laughs> uh, if, if I may say so. Um, I, I mean, we. I think we get some. We'll, but again, it's going to be very marginal. But um, my my timing is basically uh, kind of a a three punch combo. Uh, so the first punch is going to be next year. Some, and I'm putting air quotes here, but like some level of fiscal contraction. Um, and again, we're still talking about you know deficits of seven to eight percent of GDP at full employment, so we're not exactly in Tea Party mode. Uh, but some things are going. At least if you look at the Delta, the, the second derivative, the, the fiscal impulse, the change in deficit, that was that's going to go from positive to negative next year. And a lot of that is actually due to inflation dynamics. Right, last year. Uh, when we set our cost of living adjustment, when we reset the income tax bracket for um, 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 uh, filing taxes, this was off this 9% print of of June of 2022. So the cost of living adjustment was 8.5. The tax bracket was raised by 7.5. Now, when we did this again this fall, that was off this 3% print. So you're going to get a much smaller cost of living adjustment, 
probably less um, increase in federal salaries. And then there was a bunch of kind of unique factors uh, that led to the blow up of the deficit, more money sent to Ukraine, which is unlikely to be repeated. Um, there was also some sale of, I think, uh, 5G uh, auctions that did not go through. There was also the fact that Californians did not have to file taxes all the way till uh, late October this year. That really pulled money away, required more borrowing. So adding all these things, I think we see modest fiscal retrenchment. Um, and uh, we, we're in a fiscal cycle at the end of the day. You know, it's, it's not, I think we've moved from a monetary world to a fiscal world. Uh, and um, as fiscal slows down a little bit, I think you see a little bit of a slow. You may see this a bit more at the state level. Uh, one thing that I found interesting was uh, that we had a surge in state spending uh, last year. And in large part, that was political. Um, in Florida, I think teachers got a 15 to 20% pay raise. In California, I mean, I, I'm a, unfortunately a California resident. Um, California had a surplus in 2022, which you know is as rare as snow in Los Angeles. Uh, and we did what smart politicians do when they have too much money. They basically gave in cent money. I had a, it was in, uh, to fight inflation. I got a, a debit card with money on it uh, to fight in, because inflation is too high. This is... Um, almost Latin America level uh, style of politics. But of course, this was all because of the expected primary, right? Both Newsom um, and DeSantis in South Carolina, Nikki Haley, uh, basically goosed up spending in 2023 in order to juice up the economy to run on, on, on uh, kind of this beefed up economy. Now in 2024, the money that was spent last year was it's not going to be there. So we're gonna have modest contraction at the, the federal level and maybe a greater contraction at the state level. Uh, so all in, uh, you get a little bit fiscal juice into the economy. Um, I would agree with you that's probably not enough to to throw the economy into recession again, because even with, after that slowdown, we'll still have a you know deficit of GDP of like 6%, right? So that's just a tremendous amount of money being thrown at the private sector. So, you know, again, but we're coming, we're coming off nominal growth of almost 10%, right? So we can slow significantly with still without hitting that recession mark. So... Fiscal tightening in 2024, then we move on to 2025. 2025 is really the year where you finally hit these long and viable lags of monetary policy. Uh, if you look at the maturity of corporate debt, um, this is when your maturity wall hits uh, for most companies. Again, a lot of the bonds were issued in, you know, 20 uh, during the 2020-2021 period, you know, average maturity of a high yield bond is about four or five years. So that's going to mature in 2020, late 2024, early 2025. And this is when companies' interest expense is going to reset and it's going to reset significantly higher. As that resets, margins are going to go down. Companies are going to look to cut costs. Maybe that's when the labor market starts to slow down. Uh, you could also see the same dynamic with construction slowing. Uh, we already saw that today with the new home sales. Um, I mean, one of the big surprises of 2023 is how um, well the, the real estate industry has um, weathered the, the interest rate shock. Over time, again, this will happen. Eventually, people will have to, you know, the people are just holding on right now. I'm holding on to my house because, you know, I don't want to get this higher mortgage rate. Well, but, you know, people get divorced, people die, people switch jobs. Eventually, prices are going to drop. Eventually, these rate buy-downs uh, by, by home builders will, will no longer be efficient. So eventually, we'll see this, this kind of construction market slow down. That could lead to job losses. Typically, there's a 
eight to 12 months lead between when you see the first losses in the construction sector to the overall sector. So that, that brings me to, again, late 2024, early 2025 is I think where a lot of these headwinds are, are going to come together. And then finally, more of a second half 2025 story is going to be the liquidity issue. Um, for now, we've been able to uh, withstand this, this chronic tightening and uh, very large deficits uh, based basically on excess savings and excess liquidity uh, from the COVID years. We still had, you know, at one point, almost two trillion reverse repo facility. So if we drain that, there's no impact. Eventually, you'll run out of reverse repo facility. So we'll have to pick into bank reserves. Now, the question is how much excess bank reserve do we have? Nobody really knows. My best guess is from here, we have about um, um, a year and a half of, of excess liquidity. So that that points again to this mid-2025 as a perfect storm when the economy kind of slows. We may be breaking something with liquidity uh, and uh, maybe we don't have the fiscal room to do much about it. You know, I would have, would have suggested about mid-2025 as well. Um, a lot of it's like uh, about putting pins in things because you you really don't know till it happens. You just got to game it out in advance to to know what your plan is. But I'd, I'd have said 2025 because I've never seen a politician choose to tighten fiscal policy in the run up to a presidential election. And you know the Treasury Secretary, bless her, she seems um, perfectly adept and perfectly capable with with very good advisors of running the same scam that every Treasury Secretary runs in a presidential election year, running that TGA up as high as it needed to go and then letting it all go in Q2 or Q3. Um, and if they do that, that's just going to be one big stim hitting the market in the middle of 2024. Then you have to ask yourself, um, when will politicians choose to, to try and wind back fiscal? And to me, you're only going to do it after you've re-established, you've re gotten yourself re-elected. You're never going to never going to stand up and say, no, it's enough money until after that. So it's sometime in 2025 seems to me the obvious bet. And if it's 2025, that's, you know, the Fed will have to pretend to be hawkish. Um, I don't think it is particularly hawkish because as you point, you know, if you're going to run 7%, fiscal deficit, 7% of GDP fiscal deficits, how hawkish can the central bank be? Right. So uh, it's only then that there'll be enough headroom for the Fed to actually cut rates in response to what's probably going to be a pretty deep financial crisis by then, if, if we actually ever do see that kind of fiscal retrenchment. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You mentioned LATAM. Okay, you mentioned it in passing. Um, I'd love to talk about LATAM. Do you have any thoughts about things that are happening in LATAM today? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the big story is Argentina, and uh, it's a fun story. I, I mean, listen, at this point, and, and I think that was the, the, the thinking of the voters. <laughs> You know, we've, how, how bad can it get, right? Let, let, let's give crazy a chance. You know, we, we tried, uh, we tried Macri and, you know, for a while that, that seemed good. And he had the endorsement of the IMF and he sounded smart and all that. And then, you know, he couldn't get inflation under control. He couldn't, um, you know, really kickstart the economy. Then, you know, they're back to the old, you know, Peronist uh, establishment, which 
predictably being incompetent. So there is this new guy. He's certainly is. I mean, he, he has a lot of ideas um, on a wide variety of topics, including you know organ sales and and menage à trois. Um, and on the economy, um, who knows? Um, I, like I said, it can, cannot be much worse. Um, I would. It seems to me that the economy is already effectively dollarized. I read somewhere that I think one in five dollar bills, or even more than that, for the hundred dollars, is somewhere in Argentina. So, the, the dollars are already there. It's just a matter of, of getting them outside of mattresses and, and locks. That's a big business in Argentina. Just you know, you rent locks so that people can keep their dollars without you know facing the the risk that the bank will take them away from them. So the money is there. I mean, if you can get people to be confident enough, um, there's a chance that it works. Uh, I mean, certainly, I think, I think the, the odds of it working are higher than by reelecting the same people who, you know, crashed the Argentine economy for 63 years. I don't know. I, I know you're an investor in uh, in Argentine bonds, so you you know I'm I'm what you might term irresponsibly long of Argentinian bonds, um, and for that matter, Venezuelan real estate. <laughs> Those are the two ridiculous I, positions. I, I, I hear Caracas is booming, right? I mean, that, that's um, an inflation hedge, right? I mean, people... I yeah. So how, how do you how do you do that with? I mean, if you don't mind me asking, with the, the I did it via a private equity fund, and I know the guy would like me to plug him, but I think it's just kind of wrong to plug people. Um, so I won't. I won't. And if you want to know who I invested with, send us an email, and I'll tell you. And I'm sure he's looking to raise more money. Um, my logic for the trade, um, apart from you know, I can lose money in every single really dumb way possible. So I wanted to try this too, but the logic was that uh, there. The Venezuelan economy is very oil-centric. We've cut off Russian exports to the global economy. There are oil refineries in Texas which are designed to take Venezuelan crude. Russian crude was an adequate substitute, but we can't get that anymore. At least it's more complicated to get that via intermediaries. So they were always going to relax sanctions against the Venezuelans and look for a deal. You can't have a war against Russia and a war against Venezuela simultaneously. So, and if they did that, um, well, I was buying a really, really cheap market with a lot of oil. So uh, the cap rates we're talking about are about 10%, and um, the actual valuations, you can buy office buildings in downtown Caracas in the good neighborhoods where you're much less likely to be murdered. And... Um, you're paying about the same price as a 5,000 square foot house in Andover. Um, so that, that was sort of the reasoning for it. Um, we'll find out in about 10 years if it was really dumb. A lot of my trades are really dumb. Um, the Argentinian trade, though, has been quite gratifying recently. Um, it turns out that lunatics with lots of hair winning elections can be really good for bond markets. Who knew? So, you know, what can I say? He has a lot of hair. I don't. I just want to be him, really. Um, <laughs> what can I say? But, yeah, I, I, I think it will probably be something a bit like the Trump election, where uh, he can take power, but he won't be able to govern. So a lot of this will be moderated because he doesn't have the civil service on his side. He doesn't have this. So they'll try and do big 
possibly dumb things, but they may not succeed. And he intends to pay debts that he should, probably shouldn't be trying to pay. Um, so it, this stuff could rally further, and we'll see. But um, I wouldn't buy it at these levels. It's true. So what about on the, on the corporate side? I mean, because uh, I mean, it's been a, a lot of companies have actually done quite well despite the, <laughs> and and they will continue to do. You know, it's Argentina is scraping along the bottom. It can't get significantly worse. It can get a lot better. Um, if they're going to have a libertarian government, then the corporate sector will benefit from that. Um, so, yeah, I can see things improving for the corporate sector. Thing is, I, I, I bought corporate bonds early in the restructuring process, and I've sold them since. So no longer long of those things. I bought them at 30, 40 cents in the dollar, and I sold them at near par. Um, you could buy, people are buying IPFA, uh, you know, uh, kind of, but uh, whether I'd recommend it for the for retail, I don't know if I would anymore. I mean, it was a trade into the election because sentiment was so negative. And you know what? This is a really good point for broader assets in the US. We're entering year end. Um, as you go into year end, you're gonna, there's going to be tax loss selling in US markets. Um, there's going to be uh, minimum distribution uh, trades going on. Um, and hedge funds are going to be right now in the process of clearing out their books for year end. So we shouldn't really expect U.S. equities or debt markets to trade particularly rationally. I don't know. And what do you think? Yeah, I would add to that uh, target date funds. I think that's really a, been a, a factor in pretty much every every major market moves that we have. When you see these, these rebalancing flows, uh, typically you see them at the end of the month, another quarter. I mean, end of the year is, of course, the biggest one. Um, maybe that's... Um, I mean, maybe that's me just rationalizing my, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a bear steepner type of guy when it comes to yields. So I obviously had a, a very good August, September, um, and then November has been a, a total disaster. Um, you know, maybe some of that is, again, when, when treasuries underperform so much, you typically see, uh, well, not you typically, you have, you know, anyone who have a, a Fixed allocation, target allocation has to buy whatever underperforms and sell whatever outperforms. So some of these uh, mean reversion trades, like the, the rally of small caps, for example, or the rally of TLT, um, yeah, maybe we can we we can throw story onto it. But by the way, the stories would be completely incompatible. By the way, because you know, if if you see you know small cap rally, that would be kind of all oh, higher nominal growth, blah blah blah. But then why? Why bond yields dropping at the same time? So instead of like making up a story for everything that moves, um, yeah, I would go with more buyers and sellers, and and as you described, some some of the, these kind of non um, fundamental driven year end effect, um, which means that yeah, we probably won't have a clear picture of of where we are um, until early January. Um, I would not um, read too much economic meanings, uh, economic meaning in, in, in market moves. Um, and um, yeah, I think um, people will though, because there's an industry that's paid to do that. Um, what I hope that what I hope happens, that unfortunately, the, the problem is, you know, we have this kind of reflexive loop between markets and the Fed at this point. Always. Um, 
Yes, but I would say even more so, right, today, because the uh, the Fed has explicitly said, oh, I'm, I'm not hiking rates because, you know, the 10-year the yield has um, has done the hiking for me. Um, now, the question is, is, is this reciprocal, right? Is this symmetrical? I, I think it should be. Uh, I think, you know, we've, we've had monetary easing um, in, in the past month, um, and, and that would, okay, going back to our earlier topic, um, kind of um, uh, make, makes me doubt that Powell is going to cut in, in early 2025 when, uh, sorry, early 24 as the market is pricing when, when effectively that, I mean, fine, I would say financial conditions have eased quite significantly in the past. Yeah, month. it's it's hard to avoid that, right? And, you know, I take, looking at it, when I, when I we have our internal debates in MI2, uh, I, I argue that uh, it's obvious the Fed doesn't want to do any more. And I can kind of put together a case for why that's that's so. I think you've got a position where the microeconomics of higher rates is is a is a kind of mailed check which will eventually cause absolute havoc in the US financial system. It hasn't yet because neither the borrower nor the lender want to acknowledge these losses. <laughs> so if you're a regional bank and you've got guys who own buildings which are now worth 50 cents what they paid for them why would you acknowledge that you'll take a hit on your capital thing you've got no one to sell it to anyway you'll end up managing it no you just pretend let's pretend it's fine they'll pretend it's fine we'll wait so that will continue as long as it can and the amount of damage that is going to slowly steep into the market seep in over time it's huge potentially but a lot of that is micro not macro the policy is where it is for macro reasons, and it's barely constraining the economy because of those big fiscal deficits, because of this, the impact of fiscal policy. Um, they don't really want to create even bigger micro havoc. Um, it's just pointless. It's not going to do much, and it, you'll yeah. break a whole bunch more banks. So I, I, I'm with them. I can totally see why they're like, uh, that's enough for now, guys, while in the meantime... <laughs> everything's just humming along way too fast. So yeah, I think I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, even politically, right? I mean, again, it's, you know, it, it, um, if, if there is, you know, that and turns out to be the wrong um, the wrong decision, everybody will, will get on them. And I mean, it'd be, why ease? Why, why, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the market be, because the market wants it, I guess, is, is kind of the, um, the, would, would be the rational, um, but like, okay, we, we're almost at an all-time high. Like, I mean, how, how much? Central bankers love love not doing what the market wants. That's how they get, prove how tough they are. Um, yes. But if they're going to ease, they're going to ease because, look, the most likely, the, the risk is of a small tightening now, simply because as you move into the election cycle, it becomes very difficult to tighten again. So you've got that risk of one more hike here, just in case it's necessary. And in practice, though, you can see they're kind of reading between the lines of everything they say. They they really don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> really. Because, you know, if that's a one height, yeah, 25 basis points more on, you have that Monty Python sketch of Mr. Creosote exploding. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to do it. I think we are just about out of time. So, you know, this is my attempt to be Maggie Lake, but with much less here. I haven't done a great job still. Um, it has been such a pleasure talking to you, Vincent. Um, thank you so much for your views. It's only a shame that we kind of agree. 
<laughs> well, it's been a pleasure talking to you and happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Yeah, boy, am I glad that's over. I had to cook. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Join over 5,000 attendees for the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, February 28th to 29th, 2024. Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans, Balaji Srinivasan, and over 150 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential minds to explore and unveil the next wave of transformative AI technologies. Singapore will become a vibrant AI hub for a week from February 26th to March 3rd, with over 150 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Visit www.realvision.com forward slash super AI for 20% off tickets with the code realvision.